Hey guys, this is Blake. In this episode, Jake and I welcome on Teo Halls, a great friend of ours, to discuss a number of very interesting topics. The natural course of discussion led us to speaking about the importance of introspection and developing a relationship with thyself, uh, all the way out to the other end of the spectrum, discussing some really intense topics like Hitler and the conquest of Catholicism. Once again, I just want to thank you for joining us and use this as an opportunity to encourage you to hydrate. Let's get going with the episode. Good morning. We're back in black and lighter than ever, just doing anything we can to raise the vibration and accept where we're at. This is this is Blake. Jake, here. We got Teo Halls. Thanks for having me. Teo Eric Halls, actually. How many people know know you by your first, middle, and last name? Um, I'd say just probably you and my mom and my dad, you know. Uh, Anybody I tell, actually, my name's Teo. It's like a Swiss name. And uh, uh, they were originally going to decide if they should name me Eric Teo Halls or Teo Eric Halls. But then I think they were just like, you know, let's just put some weight on the bar, you know? And just like, Teo is a, a unique name and unreal. So we got some puppies in the building right now. You're probably catching a little bit of the. What you got, baby? That is sound. perhaps there might be a a mouse in there, the Parmesan prankster to be exact. Hey, t- come here. So tell us about your dogs. Okay, um, they are my cute little hamsters that keep me company. They are brothers. They're best friends, and uh, I've been raising them since they were eight weeks old. I got them from a family friend who breeds these. They're toy Australian shepherds. And they're on Instagram at Tuck and Breeze, so you can follow their hijinks there if you want. Um, and uh, they are full of attitude. Tuck's like the, the Christopher Columbus, you know, of the group. He's always down to explore, and he'll make some mistakes, you know. Um, and Breeze is kind of the pretty boy, you know. Like, I kind of imagine he has, like, a baby voice, and Tuck kind of talks like Hugh Grant. So um, here's a, a little bit of a dynamic here where you just have two completely different uh personalities trapped in these little free bodies and uh they're close friends you know like animals are a big part of my life I've got a lot of animals at home um these guys a chameleon uh, my pet fish I raise tropical fish too so um I think all of that just started with uh the abundance of of uh, seeking uh like kind of a zen garden of life, you know, putting as much life around me as possible and um everything is different, you know. You guys have a goldfish over there and uh you know the rewards of a of a fish, you know. It's not just a, a piece of art even though it is. It's kind of a ecosystem and there's balance involved and um it's just a joy to to do that too and I think there's something to just I think there's something deeply profound about the principle of just caring for another little living thing no matter how mm-hmm. significant or insignificant like I, I try to treat that thing like it's another human you know yeah absolutely. it's a good 
it's a good exercise. Same thing with my plants, you know. Mm-hmm. But even so, I still struggle like to to give them all the attention they need, you know. But it's a good. I feel like it's kind of a. It touches on that principle of like humanitarianism or lifeism, you know, whatever, you know, like all humans tend to posture themselves above everything else, you know, and it's an easy trap to fall into, but really, and the whole conscious spectrum, everything's playing a role, you know, and everything's got its, its importance, you know, we have our importance relative to hum, humans, but you know, and, and there's definitely a hierarchy within that, but I think trying to trying to look at everything as important is, is, is fundamentally important. Mm. Self-interest plays a huge role in that sort of subconscious tendency to mm-hmm. value our own motives and our own experience above that of others, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like this inherent quality that I think we're contending with, and as we begin to recognize our ego's desire for fulfillment and hunger and all of these things that we might be in pursuit of we kind of start to check the ego and begin to invest some of that extra energy into giving back um, taking care of living things i actually don't currently take care of anything other than myself yeah Yeah, i was gonna say like um so i think just this topic in itself is is inspiring me to think about okay well if I was to get a plant or a fish or an animal, you know, what would it be? And how can I take a step towards that today? You mm-hmm. know, well, taking care of yourself, like you're something you're supposed to take care of is a huge step for a lot of people. I think that there's a lot of literature about that. The way that you see yourself is how do you get yourself to drink enough water? How do you get yourself to eat the right foods? You know, you, and you, as you get older, you're kind of wandering blindly into taking care of yourself and you have really great examples. You have people who provide for you, hopefully. You have a community of friends who share your interests and in that network of trust and, and growing a, you know, community, you figure out how to take care of yourself too. And I also think it may be an interesting point. I don't know if it's true or not, but it seems like people are the only uh, species on earth that keeps pets. <laughs> And someone keeping their pet right outside. It seems like uh, human beings are the only species on earth that keeps pets. And I think that's one of our higher powers. If you look at all the things that we do. Um, and the, the people... Sorry, buddy. I think that's an interesting aspect of what we do because a lot of... Um, a lot of... Little... Which, which I think, you know, like humans need to be careful with that idea of, of the idea of being, having power and doubt over them because inevitably we are coming into a phase where there will be an integration with technology that will make us the inferior, inferior species for the first time. In, in the existence of the sapien. And so if we're not careful, you know, with that idea and we, we are like, oh, well, if we have power over this thing, then we can, we can have it as, we can keep this thing as a pet or we can do however we please. We may end up being the pets one day. You know, we may end up being the chimps one day, you know, because computation power and if something is fully integrated with, with 
digital um, data transmission, the human, uh, the human biology cannot keep up with that. And so we will be the inferior thing. And, it, and if you look at the course of evolution, we, want, we weren't always the Homo sapien. You know, we, we were the Neanderthal, or we were the Homo erectus, we were the inferior intellect that evolved into what we are now, and there inevitably will be another phase of, of humans. So I think it's best to, you know, respect the endowment, but I feel like it's respect the endowment of where we're at in the context of the moment, but also to, to, to tread lightly on the idea that we are, because we have the ability to, we do have a certain endowment of having choice in certain moments, I believe, but um, I don't know that that necessarily makes us in any way like above other things, if that makes sense. I think I understand what you you mean, and especially about the possibility of creating a a higher power or a higher um, consciousness of machine that overcomes man. And it's interesting for me to think about the differences between God and the universe. And if you think about um, the way we, or even the Christian faiths, or the basically everything in the canon of uh, the Judeo-Christian faiths, is they believe God created us. And in that way, we understand him. They say, you know, in the beginning was the word and um, the word was God. And even now as a race, we've uh, kind of become able to kill that belief of a God. I think Um, we are starting to understand facts and science and the atoms of apples and the atoms of uh, everything. And in a way, if God was the beginning of us, whatever it is, um, we've now overcome it. And if machines do the same thing with us and we create all these machines in our image and they're able to transcend us, then um, we're basically looking at the metamorphosis of the universe's decisions. And if the universe decided to have human beings and we understand the universe, then that's a reflection of the universe understanding itself. And if it gets to a point where the universe then over the time that it allows i mean the universe could for the universe could forget itself if robots take over human beings because i don't know if a computer can understand what the universe is outside of numbers or maybe computers are better at figuring out what the universe is made of and how many planets and stars and are out there but if um i feel like if the emo- the emotional ability to comprehend smallness and bigness goes away then the the might of the universe is forgotten on itself and in a way um if god has been forgotten by us it's almost the exact same thing but one could say that i I guess where where my brain goes with that is one could say the idea of remembering and forgetting that's just that is a subjective idea the universe doesn't need to remember anything it doesn't need to forget anything it just is you know and that's it, it will persist on when, when this star, the sun, burns out, like, the universe will persist on, uh, void of the idea of remembering or forgetting, it will just be, you know, and will continue to be. I think that within our bubble of, of existence, like, 
you know, it's all really about our quality of life and like what what are our principles? What what do we? What do we? How can we make it work the best for everybody while it's here? You know what I'm saying? And that's that's probably. I mean, that's what feels right. Who's to say if it's right or wrong? You know, I, we don't know. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> I think the universe is so much beyond like humans, and I think that if you do look at the math and you do look at the science and you do look at probability and possibility, but the probability is high that there are other Earths out there that are at different phases of their development and that we are just one of an infinitude of them and, you know, that we we only may have access to our proximal dimensionality of our solar system and what our telescopes tell us, but... Beyond that, I mean, I, there, there's. It's highly probable that there's so many other similar existences, similar dimensions that perhaps maybe are in a similar trajectory, or maybe they started two million years before we got got a head start on us. Two million or millions of years, maybe they're coming millions of years later. You know, we who knows? Yeah, but, and I think that's beautiful. I think it's part of being a human that you hope there's life out there. And that's really important that you can imagine. You can use your imagination and that your imagination of that being a reality makes you feel good and positive and affirmed in your own existence. And um, I think that objectively, you can look at memories of anything as, you know, the universe doesn't have to remember anything. But I think objectively, you can get too far away from... A, a human principle of existential um, power and our brain you know was made over you know if you start at the beginning of the universe an incalculable number of years we like to think of the beginning of time as the beginning of us but um, the human brain is actually an evolution of the universe um, and in that way we have uh, flourished I think in a direction that is saying um, either this is what's next or this is the end or, or something, but either way, it's just the way that the chips are falling. And in a way it's hard to say, um, if that's, um, you know, objectively good or bad, but we do have the ability to keep memories. And that's one of the most, um, beautiful things that we built our society around is we honor, um, the stories of people who came before us and we honor our own stories and the stories of people around us. And we can share those things in really romantic ways that make us feel connected. And I think probably as a tool in our belt to keep on going and keep on doing great things. It's sort of like if I forgot every single day what I did yesterday, um, probably my life would have a, a very different purpose or a very different meaning but the fact that we can build our our experiences on top of each other allows us to have a rational brain and not a uh, associative brain. And if you if you think about some of the things that make up IQ, memory is one of those things, and so is your ability to have rationalizations. Um, if you, I think honestly, like there's maybe a lot of people out there who don't know their IQ and should have an IQ test. And I think that you should go and understand what your IQ is and just know that the more, the higher your IQ is, the more you can rationalize um, a lot of information. 
And the lower your IQ score is, the more associative you can become. And there's a ton of conditioning out there in the world that is targeted at people who want to associate things with other things. And then that pulls them away from their human rationale. And I'm not saying that you should go and um, try in different many ways to raise your IQ, even though you can and... um, you know, you should. I think that that's a fun experience to broaden your consciousness. But just know that, like, a lot of things that you've been told or taught or think might not be true just because you're associating A with B, which is a, a great tool of, of powerful people. Um, when powerful people can make you associate one thing with another, um, it leads you to um, coming to conclusions that you see are very mainstream and very false. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, the IQ, the IQ testing, there's a lot of controversy surrounding the IQ testing because of it, it was constructed within the parameters of modern society and it was constructed when there was still slavery. It was constructed, like the, these, these ideas were coming around when we were introducing new people to our culture and to our country but yet it was designed for people who had the advantage of being of, of being one of the the welcomed citizens in society so you can have IQ intelligence but IQ the IQ test is based on society and and it's basically how to nav it, it's basically if you test high in IQ you can uh, almost ensure that you're going to have a greater upward mobility within the context of society. But there are, like Jordan Peterson always talks about that one guy that he treats, has the, the, uh, he carves or something, he's a wood carver. Hmm. Um, he's this gentleman that's one of his patients, but he always talks about how that man would do poorly on an IQ test, and he, but he's one of the most intelligent people that he knows. And so... I think that introspection, I think introspection is even more important than IQ because introspection is centric to the individual. So the individual is learning how to basically take everything that's in their environment, everything that they know, and also to, to tune in to some capacity to their um, intuition, you know, and just how they feel on a deep level. And then, and then they through doing that, you know, I feel like that the intuition gets stronger, the ability to deduce gets stronger, all these things get stronger naturally, and you're looking at, okay, this is my context, this is my environment, because if you try to compare me to somebody, you know, if, if you provide an asymmetric comparison to some other individual who's in a different set of circumstances, and you tell them both, you know, these are the parameters to make the best decision, well, one person's going to have an advantage because the parameters are going to fit best to their um, amalgam of circumstances versus the other person's, if that makes any sense. So I think like, I think, I think IQ, I think there's, I think the IQ could be, I feel it could be like looked at as more of like a supplementary tool than like a principle, if that makes sense. Because I think there's a lot of good things in there that can get the brain working in, in different ways. And different semantic processing and things like that. But yeah, I've just, I've heard a lot about 
the, the controversy surrounding like that, especially in like the African American community and other communities are, you know, um, they're kind of, they kind of don't fully buy into like, it seems like as a consensus, they don't fully buy into like the IQ testing, you know, because, because the parameters weren't, it wasn't on an even playing field that the, that the system was created essentially. So if you were to restructure some sort of a standardized system that could be used, not not necessarily to create a hierarchy, but maybe a system that's more based on introspective discovery, mm. um, what would that look like? Or like what types of benchmarks or components or tools would you include in some sort of a standardized test that's more so based on, I don't know enough about the IQ test to discuss specifics of it maybe you do I'm excited to take it just to take it um, but if you were to create a new standardized system or tool for people to discover um, explore and essentially adventure and reawaken their own imagination like what would some of those tools and benchmarks look like for each of you sort of in your minds yeah for me I'm not sure a tool and I'll try to think of one. I'm not sure if a tool would be as important as just a general expansion of our consciousness towards understanding what an individual is or what a community is. And in general, there's a lot of concepts, especially in mainstream, big hierarchical societies, that your individual uh, uh, importance, your individual meaning and matter is directly related to how you fit into a community and how you how a community absorbs you and how absorbed you are and that's um, basically to say you know basic people and I know basic people and when I say basic people I mean um, there it's really difficult to understand what they want in life on an individual basis to understand what their individual experiences are because they're only showing you their ability to fit in. So how do you draw out the individuality and That's unique a great nature of, of that person? You know, because I think basic, the idea of like a basic person, like it's, it's not necessarily, at least in the context that we're using it, it's not meant to be something that puts someone down, but more so as like an indication for further well, expansion and yeah. like maybe exploration maybe a lot of people i meet their frustration is manifesting in ways that they can't even like say and i don't have to put them down because they're taking antidepressants because they're uh stuck in a, a rut of behavior or other people's expectations are pushing down on them and i find that one of the greatest ways to draw out an individual or a unique is to ask them what kind of permission they need to do something. Um, who, who's calling the shots here? And if there's something you, you want, um, it, have you either told yourself that that's an unacceptable, uh, unobtainable goal? Or um, is there somebody you really wish you could reach out to, like a mother or a lover or your son or um, anybody in your life and say, hey, um, I'm going to try doing this. And while I don't need your permission, I would love your support because this is a direction I want to go. And that's one of the first 
uh, frameworks of connectivity that we have are the people closest to us and just letting them know that, um, hey, my real self is somebody who likes to wear bird costumes and uh, go dance, uh, you know, downtown and saying um, I've decided that that's what I want to do and how I want to spend my time. Um, and for such a silly example, it's a really great one because it seems that maybe that's what seems silly to me, you know, and um, there's someone downtown right now doing it. And it's really hard to connect with people who you see doing something so unique and individual um, because the conditioning is so strong to to just like kind of ignore that voice in your head and um, not give yourself the permission but I think uh, a really great way is just to stop asking permission. Like, if you know what you want to do in life, uh, you know, double down and just uh, fucking go for it. Because there's um, no one that can stop you. We've, we've noticed that everything in life um, is obtainable, to, as far as we know. And your individual power is so extreme and so strong that nothing could stop you. And the more you commit to that, um, it, the more the universe compels you to do it and uh, you'll you'll be successful and there's a really great Maya Angelou quote which is um, I'm a human therefore nothing human is beyond me and if uh, just in the stories of people climbing Everest um, you look at someone who climbed the highest mountain in the world or um, you know you look at that and you can there's uh, something poetic about it and I think it's because it affirms our own uh, love of potential and actually, um, Nietzsche also talks about the difference between success and potential in a very uh, poetic, objective way. And basically, he says that no one cares about success. We only care about potential. And even we only share success stories. We only watch movies about the underdog winning. And we only, uh, we, we only cherish these stories of, of people achieving, not because we're obsessed with achievement. That's a that's a misguided perception, but it's because we believe in potential and we believe everybody has potential and we have potential and those success stories affirm that. And um, it's really amazing if you start living your life one step at a time to not obsess over your success, but to start obsessing over your potential for success, the amount of success that will manifest in your life because you've now committed every step to your potential is extreme and and you'll realize that the fun is what's coming next and the next step of your potential and if you keep growing that every day and that's your garden that you're growing your successes will be sweet every single time because you'll be like wow that just entered my life these these cute dogs just walked into my uh my story and um my beautiful girlfriend and my job that I love and um, all of these things, um, those are not because those are the things I obsessed on. I obsessed on my potential for growth and all, all of a sudden success started pouring into my life in uh, innumerable, innumerable ways, you know? Mm. And um, that's what I really would love to just share a message of um, with everybody out there. It doesn't matter if you're... A, you know, hellbent on your unique individuality um, or your community. But if you could start um, thinking about what I could do today to make a, to take, so let's say you want to climb Everest, right? And if you wanted to, um, if you wanted to go 
because we already used that example as, as a poetic kind of idea. Um, everybody's got an Everest. They really do. There's something out there. There's like, you know, just because a guy woke up and was like, I have to climb the highest mountain on earth. I have to. Um, somebody's got that in their heart for something. And um, when, if I wanted to take a scope and a scale, maybe as a tool, like you mentioned, what percentage ready to climb Mount Everest am I? Um, well, I don't have a climbing background, but I'm a six foot two uh, able-bodied man and I could probably afford some gear. So I'm gonna say like between five and 10% ready, right? And today, what could I do to go from 5% ready to 5.1% ready? And if I can do that, maybe that's like I start watching YouTube channels or just watch an inspiring movie about climbing mountains or something. I feel like my potential to one day be at that point on the mountain improved. And once you feel like you're at 5.1, what could get you to 5.2? And I'm sure that once you get to like 50, you realize you're actually at five again and you have to climb back up there, right? And then, because that's how information works. When you have a, a information hobby, uh, you realize after charging for a long time, real headstrong, that you were never as close as you thought, but that's okay because now you know so much. Now you're in the, you can go to the, the, the mountain climbers club and talk about your friend and talk with your friends about the jargon and the things that are happening. And you didn't even know you were an amateur when you were, all you knew is you wanted to get to the next step up. And, um, there's a, uh, there's a beautiful tool for you. It's not like a standardized test, but I would ask people to honestly ask themselves on a scale of zero to 100%, how close are you to your Everest? And if it's something you really care about, don't, don't think about the first step of the mountain. Don't think of all the challenges along the way on the mountain. Think about how to get to the mountain feeling ready. Um, because even then, if you got halfway up Everest, do you know how cool it would be to like tell your friends that you tried to climb Everest? You know, like after maybe it took 10 years to get to that point and that gave you a lot of life and that gave you a lot of memories and hopefully um, at the end of it, you could just shift gears. Maybe you got halfway up Everest and you decide you wanna, you know, buy a yacht or something, you know, whatever you really want to do and get halfway there if you have to also, you know, there's, you're probably 10 years away from whatever you want. I honestly believe that too. So, um, that's, a that's just one way the individual is really great. Yeah. That's kind of analogous to, I mean, I'll probably implement something like, um, Mark was just telling me about how he's reading, uh, what is it? The, is it 12 rules for life? Yeah. I love Mark, by the way. I miss that guy. Where, uh, yeah, he's great. Uh, so, but he was just telling me how Peterson's always pushing, and I've heard Peterson say this in his, uh, in his lectures a lot about the idea of like negotiating with yourself and like actually looking at yourself like you're sitting across the table from another individual and let's say you need to eat. let's say you know he always talks about like manage your environment or master your environment and then it kind of uh, blossoms 
outwardly from there. So starting with basic things such as like cleaning your room, for instance, like if your room's a, me- a, a mess and it's completely disorganized, he said you got to start with like the basic, you know, you, you basically ask yourself the most generalized questions. Okay, am I willing to 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 initiate this project of, of cleaning and organizing my room? Yes. Am I willing to um, spend Am I willing to spend four hours doing it? No, no, I'm not. And if you're, if the answer is not immediately yes, then you say, or if it's even a maybe, then you say, am I willing to do two hours? And you're still hesitant. Am I willing to do a half hour? Okay, da da da. Am I willing to, um, am I willing to address the most difficult part of cleaning my room, which is the closet? I don't know if I want to get into that. Okay. Am I willing to organize all my dirty clothes? Yes. So you, you, you kind of narrow it down where you, you, where you, you get to this point of negotiation where you actually find what you are willing to do. Because if we are inspired to do it and, and we know it wholeheartedly on every level, we know we're at least going to do that. And like you said, we'll at least make that kind of incremental progress toward it right now and do what we can right now. So I think that that's, I think developing some kind of system where it's like, okay, well, let's, let's, let's forget all this noise out here for a second. And let's just like, I'm, I'm here with myself. I got to face myself and I got to be real with myself. Yes. You know what I'm saying? And that's, that's, I think somehow encouraging people to, to just be with themselves and, and, and speak with themselves and have conversation with themselves. And then that way they can find, you know, that way they can find that, that spot that where yeah. they're going to walk away and be like, man, like they're going to be able to sleep good that night because they, they have a clean they, room. They, yes, you know? exactly. It's, it's literally, you're so right. And there's, um, imagine you met someone who was rigidly against cleaning at all. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you love that person, maybe it's you, you know? Maybe you're the person who's rigidly against cleaning for even one second. You can't do it. You you go through, you're like four hours, two hours, zero. I'm never going to clean, um, and that's who I am. And every time I think about cleaning, now I'm upset, you know? Like, that's, you are a, your capacity for a better life is... Um, really going to be shut down by the way you've just stunted that um Mm -hmm. that positive feeling of self-esteem about getting something done and i think that that's that greatly applies to how rigidly you believe what you believe and if you are absolutely rigid on not questioning what you believe you are as foolish as the person who's rigidly against cleaning for one second and if in and, and you it happens all the time there's people out there who sorry about that there's people out there who are every time a thought pops into their head that questions something they know it upsets them and they're not willing for one second to clean that room and if really if they just spent if those if you, if you really feel like you're scared about things you don't understand or that if you actually I'd say if you are empowered by believing you know everything and you are so certain on what you think being the truth I would really encourage you to clean your room you know and spend even 
five seconds saying what I know uh, could be wrong. Mm-hmm. And there's other things worth knowing about that contradict this and other ways to be. And in that way, um, maybe you you start cleaning up your consciousness a little bit. And mm-hmm. and then have you ever met someone and, and I'm asking, uh, uh, you know, semantically, because I know you guys have, because you guys are a lot like this, but you're really willing to question everything you see. Like maybe what you, you know, like screw what you heard, you know, and um, and those people, their consciousness and their mental um, cognitive abilities, it looks like a clean room. Mm-hmm. You're like, you really have the ability to say, oh, that's a ripple in the pond versus not seeing where the pebble went in choppy waves because you've really cleaned up, you know, and, and uh, I think that um, that's a great starting point is uh, because you might maybe screw what you heard maybe all the things that you think are bringing you happy like money or or things that are objectively not existential in my opinion like uh sex and love and money and things like that um and that's i i mean we can delve into why i think that too because there's so many things about people's lives that you can manifest and you have so much control over um the way you see the world you have immense control over and um one example of that is like look at justice if you believe in a just world and you have a pure belief that the world is just um then maybe you become involved in justice and if you look at people who sit on the supreme court of the united states these are people who believe in so much justice in the world that they became a justice and they serve justice and it's all they think about all day long um and they manifested that just by believing in justice and those are the people you want to be judges i don't want to meet a judge who doesn't believe in justice right that you really want them to see the world that way so they can serve that job in society um and that's just your world view and whatever you your world view is really starts to become um, part of your existential ability. But if your worldview is that, um, you know, you need to be having more money and stuff like that, that won't manifest, that'll backfire. Because spending money, in my opinion, is, um, it's like a trap. It's like we've been conditioned to think that spending money makes you feel good. But that's only because there's people out there selling something um, at a price higher than they make it for. And that's how they feed their machine too, you know? And um, there's uh, a really, I think, important uh, aspect of your existential abilities is, you know, look at the world uh, through fresh eyes and let it make you cry and let it make you laugh when you're done crying and then cry again. Um, And then however you see it, decide if that's the world you want to live in. Um, Because at the beginning of your existential journey or in the middle of your existential journey you might realize that maybe you thought the world was a cruel place and maybe you thought the world was a cold place or a savage place Um, but all of that cruelty you will become and all of that savageness you'll also become Um, and that's only I mean if we're talking in the terms of like self-improvement which I think we've kind of like come into I really don't have any problem with like um, like 
intercommunalism, like people out there who as a community, their beliefs are completely different than mine and that's how they live, you know? Um, I think that, I'm, I mean, I'm not really talking about sectarianism where like everybody is different or has like superior feelings about how they are living, but it's really about um, respecting people's emotional fabric. Like if I tried to, if I really wanted to have a, a Frappuccino from Starbucks delivered right now, super easy right so easy i can just get the app on my phone or call a friend who i love and be like i'll get you like a a gift card i'll buy you a hundred dollar starbucks gift card if you bring a frappuccino here right now you know that's even just using not the system that exists today in our society but it's part of it but that's it but that's it but a lot of that is predicate like all of those promises are based on money you know, like, yeah, like sure. you have to have, you have to be able to pay, you have to be able to afford a $9 but, cup of th- But that's the point system in our society that we have is money, right? Well, our, what, what, what I'm saying is that I think fat. like money, I think wanting to have money is not bad. I think wanting to have money and that's where it ends is, is, is where you are flawed. If you actually look for me, I've done a lot of introspection on why I would like to acquire a lot of wealth for myself and it's deeper than me just wanting to spend money. I want to, I, I, I desire to acquire wealth because I know my principles and, and, and I know that being a humanitarian, I'm, I'm confident that having that kind of energy, um, in my possession, I know that good will be done by it. I know that it will be a positive net force in the universe Mm -hmm. beyond just me having like, you know, having things is, it's, it's a very fleeting, but, but, you know, it could be, it could be cool in the moment to have like nice things or whatever, but it's, I think it's really all about that introspection thing going and like asking the question, okay, yeah, I'd like to have money. Why is it really, mm-hmm. is it because I want to have like a dope car? No, not really. I mean, that could be a nice like effect of it, but really what it is, is be, is, I see the world, I see so many things going on in the world and I would like to, to, I'm confident that if I have that kind of energy, like that, it, that, that money will be directed in, in something that is productive as a net positive for the whole versus like just kind of fueling my own ego. So I think like it all really circles back around to like introspection like I'm a big believer in introspection I think the way the best way to cultivate introspection is is some kind of is to encourage some kind of mindfulness um, discipline like I think it all circles back to that mindfulness thing of like when you're meditating and you're just and, and, and even if you don't you're not doing some objective form of meditation but you're just doing the most basic form of mindfulness meditation where you are in the universe and that's where you're at that principle that idea um kind of leads essentially to you know these deeper more complex um you know self interactions you may have of like questioning things that pertain to you know our, 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 our waking consciousness. But when you are in that spot and you're just like, okay, there's a million sounds right now. My knee hurts. Like my toe hurts. It's gone now. 
you know, like you're just witnessing it, you know, you're just watching these things arise and fall, just like the weather patterns, just like a wave in the ocean. You know, you you get to that fundamental thing of like, what is, is, okay, this is where I'm at, you know, and if people can like depart from their own narrative for a moment and just center themselves on where they are, they can get some kind of bearing to, you know, navigate and get some kind of realistic perspective, some kind of actual perspective, you know, it's like, um, just allowing the mind to be, I think I would implement circling back to your question of like, what would that system be? I think there would be some components that could be found in the IQ test. I think there also would be a mindfulness practice, um, you know, as part of that to give it another dimension. I think there would be, um, you know, I think just general, maybe maybe some natural problem solving, not necessarily like problem solving in nature, like being outside in the wilderness, because we can all relate to that. You know what I'm saying? That's a, that's no matter how much we've developed or or created new dimensions in society or new ways of living, like we can all relate to nature. And so I think like if you can solve problems in nature, you know, and, and maybe touch back with touch those endowments of like survival perhaps or whatever it is I think that takes our mind to those places of like wow I can do that like I, I made it like I'm, I'm fine I'm still here you know and then you, you got yourself there because a lot of people don't they don't actually like dip down and try to like push themselves to some kind of physical or mental challenge that they've never experienced because it's 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 never been necessary, you know, where there are some people, you see a lot of people emerge as very successful people who have been forced into some degree of immense struggle so that that way they had to take their mind to that place to overcome it. And once they did, then like all rules were suspended from all previous beliefs were suspended of limitations and everything because they're like, well, shit, I'm still here. You see that a lot of people with um, near-death experiences, too. People that experience have a near-death experience tend to... You, you tend to see that a lot in very successful people because they, they've gone they've gone to that very depth where they're like, I basically already died already. Like, I've, I, I've basically already been here. I'm not afraid of anything, you know, like, whatever. I just, this is another day in the office. I've already been there, you know. And then they're able to just throw themselves into it you know and that that I think is yeah well is a, yeah throwing yourself into something is is beautiful and amazing and I think that we also like some people feel compelled to martyr themselves I feel like some of our biggest role models in this life that we've had are martyrs and in a lot of ways martyrs are great role models but it's not a great uh you know life to lead or you don't have to put yourselves down that path and there's really great examples like if you look at a professional bodybuilder you know uh that person started going to the gym and then they like snapped off right like they just went in they were like wow working out goes hard and they just like now you're looking at uh like arnold schwarzenegger in his prime like six mr universes um and he's you know massive He's just huge, and you're you're looking at him, and it's actually the and maybe Arnold's not a great example, um, but there's a lot of stories out there of these bodybuilders who start taking steroids as part of their business model. 
you know their business model is to be huge because maybe they're an author or maybe they're a trainer or maybe they're a, a personality or they're they're literally a professional bodybuilder and they make their money going to tournaments and winning checks because they look so big and strong um, but those are not healthy decisions those are not healthy choices um, and there, there's a lot of you know I don't have to tell anybody like don't do steroids because it's not good for you but if you want to look like that um, I'm not gonna say you have to but um, they they do and to look like that um, but when I see a cover of a magazine with a giant bodybuilder on it it inspires me to go to the gym once a week you know it inspires me to go to the gym you know a few times a month and in that way they've their success affirmed my potential and now I'm doing the best thing for me but I'm not I'm not thinking I have to completely snap and look like this and I don't think a lot of people do really I think the amount of people at the gym who want to look like uh, professional bodybuilders is really low right but when you look at the pinnacle of that culture that's what they're upholding and I think we do the same thing to millionaires and billionaires I think that we, when you look at money, when you see a billionaire, there has to be something, there's only like 500, right? Out of like the billions of people on the planet. And so you're looking at someone who, I, I honestly believe like this, it's not luck and there's probably a psychology around what they were trying to do. And maybe they were just in a market where they thought there was tons of potential and they aced it, you know? Um, and, and that's possible too. But otherwise, I think there may be something deeper. And, and I think a big point here for expressing your own individuality and your individual needs and having all of those things met abundantly with a, you know, constant um, availability in life is to ask if you're chasing something you really want. Um, if it's in you, if it's in your head, um, and how powerful are the driving factors? Like you might meet somebody who wants money because money mattered to their dad. And they know that if they made money, all of their issues would be solved with the relationship there. Um, because look, even though all those choices you doubted and all those things I did that you hated and I feel like you resented um, me and didn't see yourself, but I went my own way and made a buck. And... Um, now we can we're good right and uh maybe that's like a tertiary pa passion that's like a, a secondary market for your investments you know like in my opinion if you make that such a primary goal i think you would only know that if you were honest with yourself and and list making is a great way to be honest with yourself like um you might say what does money mean to me make that a list and then you have you have another list why do i want money you know and maybe those are very similar lists but there's like a slight difference in intention is why do you really want money um is it because in a in a society like this money is power and power is change um is it because um you know the way people perceive you you want self-esteem you want the things you want um maybe but it's not just money, it's everything. It's, it's really everything um, that you can get to the core of why you want something. Because I really do think that everybody's got one thing that you could like hit a home run a thou like times a thousand, 
at that one thing because that's who you are. It's in your head. It's your life experiences. It's what makes you tick and what makes you run. And you've all, everybody's got it, right? When you see really great examples of, you know, if it, like a billionaire, a bodybuilder, or Tom Brady playing football, you know, like something out there in the world, you're looking at one of the billions of people that aligned all of their actions with all of their intentions. And that synergy right there is fission, you know? That's like splitting an atom and the energy that that creates. And when you have that potential to do that in your head um, uh, through truly understanding what you would fight um, for through anything, um, everything will get painful, everything will get difficult. Um, and actually, I'll say difficult, you can process difficulty as pain, um, but I wouldn't actually, I would say that difficulty and challenges, um, while you meet a lot of people who are like, I had a hard day, and that gave me the bummers, you know, sometimes when I have a hard day, I'm like, man, I just had a hard day. And for some reason, I thought I would get home and collapse. But now I've got six more hours of strength to do anything I want. Because I that's probably my 5000th hard day in a row, you know, like, because I've intentionally matched what I want with my actions. And um, that's um, a great place to be. And you might even start feeling like um, the things that are difficult, uh, in your life are energizing you versus draining you. Um, because if at the core it's, you're working hard for something you don't want, that's going to make you feel terrible. You're going to feel empty and you're going to feel tired because the reward didn't match the output because it's some, it's something somebody else wants. And maybe because you can get it and other people want it, um, you think that's going to make you happy. But at the end of the day, uh, that's just going to make you feel tired and uh, and not rewarded for your humanity and your time, which is something we don't have a lot of. So um, if you can figure out um, what you really want and you know it, and I promise you it's that thing, right, that um, is in the back of your head that you feel unstoppable about. Like nobody, nobody could, even the harshest criticism couldn't stop you. Even the worst day couldn't stop you. Um, you've basically picked your battles and you've primed yourself for success. Um, and, I mean, it's a lot like adopting a dog, right? Um, full circle. I know that there's days and times that having a dog is just the worst, you know? They're, mm. they're going to break something that I cherish. They're going to make a mess of a carpet that was expensive, um, or was perfect in a room. And now I'm like, I got to either get that clean. It's just all these things. Um, but it's the battle I picked and it's the battle I chose. So none of those difficulties will be difficult enough to ruin my experience and to ruin my goal of, uh, having these, you know, beautiful angels in my life. And, um, so when I adopted the dogs, I felt unstoppable about it. And it's, it's true. It is unstoppable because I already know that. I don't think you should adopt a dog and be like, well, if it doesn't work out in a few weeks, I'll just take it back. You know, if you, if you create a pattern of that in your life, you're, you're going to just have the worst experience. Yeah. 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 I think, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Cause that kind of, that's, 
it seems like well like with a living thing it's like well then that that might be why the value of having a living thing is is so crucial because now you have a living thing and it's not it's not like that thing where you're saying hey i'm gonna be a mountain climber and get halfway up the hill and then be and then buy a yacht you know <laughs> you can't do that with a dog you can't do yeah. that with a living thing because right. there's a lot more on the line mm-hmm. and so maybe that can can be some kind of um some kind of parallel to like the pursuit of your of, of what that thing is on a deeper level that you know you're unstoppable about like maybe that you know maybe looking at that thing like it's a living thing you know mm-hmm. like like it's an actual person you know and that like if if I don't get to the top of that mountain maybe maybe that thing dies you know maybe I didn't nurture it enough or whatever so maybe there isn't there is no other option you know there isn't then to get there you know so I think that's that's pretty cool I like that and an interesting point like off the idea of perceiving our goal or our Everest as a living thing I think an important component of that is knowing that change is inevitable like a living breathing being is always going to be evolving and the attention and the love and affection that goes into nursing and adapting to change within our own lives and in the pursuit of something that that we love I think is it's incredibly it's incredibly nuanced like it's it's something that like when we're take if you even think of growing younger or future thoughts or a music project or you know whatever your dream is as this living breathing entity there are so many different points of connection and entry and relation to that thing that are always going to be shifting and changing so i think having like a healthy attitude towards that inevitable sort of impermanence is a way to just naturally keep progressing and to continue just climbing the mountain Mm -hmm. and knowing that there really actually is no top you know like you're never going to get to the top of of Everest unless if you're actually climbing Everest but whatever your Everest is you know that thing will always continue to evolve and change and we will change with it as well um and I think just to also put my two cents in about the money, like I personally have a very different relationship to money than, than many of my friends. Um, but I'm sure there's also many people out there that re- relate to my own personal view, because for me, like growing up, money was never like a, it was never really like much of a point of conversation or anything. Like I grew up in a, in a family where, money was like things were provided for me and I'm still um, in that point of transition where you know my own livelihood is is halfway you know half of my livelihood comes from the support of my parents I'm about to graduate college I'm about to transition into being independent and I'm, I'm trying to navigate you know like what is my relationship to money And I think more so than money, I'm trying to think about it in terms of value and what it is that I can bring to a situation or an organization or an an environment. Um, What is what value do I have to contribute and why is that value going to be worthy 
or worth you know the dollar of someone else so i think that that perception of value and just the greater idea of like what is it that we all each uniquely have to contribute is also a healthy um just perspective to bring into the conversation about money as well oh yeah absolutely i think yeah value value is i mean that's that's essentially what wealth is the effect of is if you're not providing value on, on in in some um in some context like wealth is not wealth just can't happen you know like unless it's done in an immoral way or an unjust way which that is you know that's essentially building a, a castle on a sandy foundation you know like you can't it's not it's not gonna hold you know so I, I totally agree with that I think that's probably like the deeper that that comes before the money you know which is that always comes before wealth acquisition or anything like that um, on yeah. that note let's um let's end this segment because we have about 15 seconds until it's gonna automatically cut off cool. and we can figure out what we want to do from there so thanks for tuning in guys this is breakfast with blake and jake featuring teo eric halls thanks for having me there's this kind of story or like idea that I heard somewhere and I don't remember where but it was basically like the in a ship they have a person posted in the crow's nest and he can see further out and let people below know that there's land coming and, and that's on the the mast yeah on the mast right and because the kind of thing yeah yeah right and because they can see land um, doesn't mean that they can see the future it just means they're higher up and can see more Mm. it's still the same second of existence as everyone below them Mm. they just know what's coming because it's their job to be higher up and see things and um, when you have a higher consciousness I would say that it's if you intend for your job to be captain of the ship fine you're still going to rely on people who have focused their um their consciousness on knowing what's coming next and mm-hmm. and and explaining that uh to you but if you really feel like you're in the crow's nest and you and your consciousness is really seeing the future of things um you know, in that system, that's a military organization on that ship, and they are going to listen to you when you have information because they were they seriously were like, go sit in that basket, and as soon as you have information, let us know. You know, there's a capacity in our society for that same relationship, but it's where people are going to listen, and um, and if you look at the big militaristic ways that we move, um, you look at things like church or like a bar let's say bar and church are the two examples here when you go to a bar there's a band playing there's everyone's drinking it's really loud there's like a chatter and no one's there to be listening to the information about the future you know that is a a a place where people are feeling the now and in a good way hopefully a healthy way um, being cathartic about their negativity that can hold them back or um, whatever they're just releasing good 
but the next morning they're going to go to church and they're going to sit down in church and that's a moment that they've taught themselves to listen and to understand and to hear and it's no surprise that some of the biggest prophets that we've ever had in mankind are religious figures and I think that that's not because their religious ideas were more powerful than other ideas, but I think it's really because their message was told in the environment where people are going to listen and hear about the future and hear about the ideas. And because that's where they go and they gather up in their time to hear the message, that's why we all know the message. It's like it's maybe that simple. Um, so when you... If you are a prophet, be a prophet, you know? And part of that is understanding when and where people listen and how to make that message accessible even in that environment. And um, I really believe in like manifesting objective truths, which is um, people really only listen to themselves. And when they listen to other people, it's because they've given that power over they've said my higher power to listen to myself and hear my thoughts and do what I say I'm now relinquishing to this figure maybe because of their moral authority or because of their responsibility authorities or because they say I have to maybe even and sometimes it's because you see sometimes it may be because you see in that individual something they have that you want right right like if I see, uh, you know, if I'm listening to Elon Musk, like he has, like, I relinquish, I relinquish my, I, I basically have a, a certain level of trust based on the results he has produced mm-hmm. as a human being and, and what it's principled on and why when I listen to him speak, and I see these results he achieves, and I see the motivation for doing that. I relinquish my own biases, and I I listen to this guy based on what he's done. You know, like he's when I encounter someone like that, it's like, well, that's that's a perfect example of someone who, you know, is extremely. He's kind of like the all-encompassing thing of what we talked about, but he's extremely wealthy. He has a ton, he has more money than an individual could possibly like utilize for their own purposes yet he's wholeheartedly principled on value he's he's running on an algorithm of like how am i sir how can i rise how can all ships rise with the tide of this of what i'm doing you know and that's and and everything he's doing is based on like giving people a a, a like eliminating like a lot of resistance in people's existence so that they we they have way they can focus more on themselves. And so that's I think like get like that's another motivation if you are that person or you do see things in a certain way. I think that's just another motivator to to get yourself to a certain point that people recognize that there's something you got that they don't yet have but they want, you know, and then that 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 just kind of speaks for itself. Like it kind of, that naturally happens when you see like, if Elon Musk said, Hey, Hey guys, I want to, I want to, I want to have a meeting with you for an hour. Like you're going to be at that meeting, whether 
no matter what. You know what I'm saying? Taking like, notes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Taking notes and, and, and you're going to be 100% engaged and because he's got something, you know, like he did, some, he did something that you, you know, like you want to figure out what that thing is that allowed him to get to where he is, you know, and so, maybe, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, imagine ways and execute strategies to increase your righteous authority. Right. Um, where through living right or through um, it being an example, other people will listen. Um, and Elon Musk has had to go to war his whole career against people who wanted to discredit him or stop him or hurt his influence. Um, but he's a really smart guy and he bets right and he prophesizes. He um, in ways that are probably real and um, it's and he's become that thing where his righteous authority is really great and he's stuck in it and it's amazing sometimes righteous authority is um, just ageist too in a lot of ways in our society like um, I work under a chef and I know that he's worked 20 years in this industry and when I when I go into work, I'm learning from him and I'm listening and I'm, I'm trying to understand mm -hmm. what to do because of his righteous authority to be that person. And because um, when you run a kitchen, it's a ship, you know, it's a tight organization where things have to run a certain way to avoid chaos, which the business can't stand, withstand. The business won't run with chaos in a kitchen mm. because eventually someone will just get hurt or a customer will get sick or the food won't be as good because there's no passion or energy there to keep things done the right way. And so there's discipline and dedication in developing your righteous authority. It's sticking in it. Um, and I know that if I became a chef at the age of 28, that um, my righteous authority would not be um as powerful when i meet you know older chefs i got a perfect example that i yeah. met a guy um i think it was last year but he was like he was an espn um camera guy so he he was like he would do they would send him to all like the highest profile or what they perceive what they speculated to be were going to be the highest viewed games because he was just the best at Cool. especially in hockey because mm -hmm. hockey's so fast paced mm -hmm. he just had this gift of like being able to like see where it was going mm -hmm. to, to get the right shots you know and he said that a lot of these guys come like a lot of these guys come in under him and they're just like fresh out of college and he, they'll send him an email and on their email it'll say I'm this I'm, I'm a cameraman I'm a this I'm a XYZ da 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 and the first thing he says is pull him aside he said so you're a camera person so what's a uh, like what's your resume? Like mm -hmm. what? What have you? What have you actually done? You know, mm -hmm. and um, he said that they always have like a very humbling experience because he said he didn't even start calling himself a cameraman until he had about, I think he said like twelve years of, mm -hmm. of like experience doing it, mm -hmm. of like where he was like perfecting it, mm -hmm. where he could actually say like that he could actually say with authority like I am a cameraman and here's my work. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is what I've done. But he said that, you know, that can kind of be um, a trap to getting into, like, it's kind of like um, one of these fighters that I follow named George St. Pierre is in the 
um, Ultimate Fighting Championship, he said he's cocky behind closed doors, mm-hmm. but he's not. But he's very humble when he's around people. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll never see him like you'll never see the stuff he's doing behind the scenes to like. You know his pre-fight routines and stuff. That's all for himself. You know where he's in front of a mirror. He says and he's telling himself he's the champion. He's the best. Mm-hmm. Da da da. But he's not putting that out there for everybody to see. He's, he's just basically winning fight after fight after fight. And then when he speaks, people listen to him. You yeah. Know? He's he can say like I, like people can, he can say I am a mixed martial artist. You know like and and, and here's my resume. You know, like it speaks for itself. You don't even have to say anything. Humility is so endearing and it's so important because it demonstrates gratitude and it demonstrates appreciation and uh, teamwork and collectivism. And I think it's, if you look at like two like NFL wide receivers who have the exact same resume, same number of catches, same number of games, yards, touchdowns, and um, you're going to, they both write a book about football right there's the first page of one guy's book is I'm the greatest um wide receiving was never the same uh before me or after me and when I'm on the field I'm a I'm a beast you know and then the first page of the other guy's book is uh thanks to the loving fans of my team and my owners for believing in me and my coaches and uh I feel grateful for all the experiences I had and um that was a blast, you know? I mean, now you're looking at two different mentalities and maybe one is part of us and maybe they they both have that, you know? Mm-hmm. It's all about how you um, visualize your path to success and attack it. And maybe before every single snap on an NFL field, because everybody's so good, you have to think you're the best to get it done, to mm-hmm. bring the ball down, and, you know, and get the point. Oh, like, and I think that there is like, yeah. there is like a utility in like the ego you know or the superficial ego because it's like it's kind of calibrating yourself to the manifestation of being successful in that game or successful in that career Mm -hmm. it's like it's setting all like this is what i am you know this is it's it's basically establishing like recognizing your own potentiality Mm -hmm. but but not but 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 like the people that seem to be the best at it like all the champions like they seem to have a way about knowing that about themselves on a very profound level and fueling that in their own way but being discreet yeah. about how that they how they fuel that aspect of their success and then being more open with just being um humble and confident mm-hmm. you know like confidence and cockiness they both have a utility it's like if you go into like like you see these these UFC fighters it's like if they go into a match like they have like they step into that octagon with somebody who literally could take their life mm-hmm. because of the level of training that they have like they have to know like i i i can beat this this dude like, yeah. i can i i'm they have to bring their down. a game like, of energy they yeah. have to if you show everything's yeah, got to be high energy high all the time and maybe it's to a point where meditatively to achieve that level of energy, you have to start like putting that aura on and stepping into a character who has that energy, who's, who always has that energy, who never, step, who never steps down from, yes. a, from a fight, who never does anything. Because if you show up tired to that fight and you show up low energy and, and maybe 
like low ego, low energy, kind of interchangeable there because like ego is big energy. Like you mm. meet like big egotistical people, and there's that high energy around them, and maybe that's a positive experience or a negative experience. But either way, there's something that just lights it up, and um, I'm sure that that's just a part of that energy. And then maybe the energy that you need to like thank the fans and thank you know whatever you need to thank um, afterwards isn't the energy you needed to get the job done. Which is really interesting. It's like, can you slip into the character that can do what you have to do? And um, can you create that person? You know, a lot of um, like social, for antisocial um, people who seek counseling for antisocial behavior or antisocial instincts or they want community but they don't know how to make friends because they, maybe they don't like who they are. You know, there's a lot of advice out there that's like, well, just go be yourself, you know? And maybe that's solid advice, but if you have a low opinion of yourself or you have low attitude or low self-esteem... Yeah, I don't think there's enough weight behind so that like, idea. One of the literal methods that they tell is like, think of your favorite suavest movie star. Like, think about... Like, for me, I love Vince Vaughn. I love Tom Cruise. I love, um, you know, even like goofy, like Brendan Fraser, like from The Mummy, you know, like stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And um, that one of the big like material ideas they say is like go to a party and pretend you're Vince Vaughn like go to a party pretend you're Tom Cruise and um and you'll manifest a lot of the energy that um you admire about them you know and um it's it's really true it really works and in a way I wonder if your natural like how you would naturally respond to an event like someone spills a drink on your carpet, you know? I mean, I can now picture the way that I feel like Tom Cruise would respond if he was at a party and someone spilled a drink on his carpet. He'd probably just laugh and be charming and be like, it's just a fucking carpet, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, like, if you... I mean, at least I think so. Maybe he snaps on carpet shit, you know? Heard, like, <laughs> well, Tom Cruise, I've, I've actually heard that, like, people say he's, like the biggest sweetheart of a guy right. like you could ever meet like he's always like he's always as far as like the positivity thing and that's what I think is interesting about like the idea of Scientology like mm-hmm. people hate on that so much but that honestly like that guy does amazing shit like all the time <laughs> like he does things that defy standards for his age yeah. defy standards for human beings like and he's always on an A game with positivity like he never deviates like you hear other celebrities talk about him and that's the proof because celebrities they'll be the first ones to say if like oh that guy's not very cool like in person or whatever when you really get to know him but like people always go out of their way to be like honestly like he's almost like a guy like people want to hate but you can't because he's just always on that like positivity and, and why know? would you hate i mean really hate is well they hate him because they he's yeah. he's a light that they yeah you know, we're afraid of our yeah. own light you know people yeah. are afraid whether it's like my natural response or my trained response now is like I never want to jump to hating someone or judging anything right and that's something maybe I cultivated because when I was a kid maybe I was a little more judgmental maybe I saw things that I was like oh I don't like that that's so, that's so weird but over time I started realizing like true happiness is like within and and when I see even Scientology I'm like look a young religion that's threatening um you have a lot of members of it that didn't like the experience um and 
but there's a lot of members of the religion that do have a, a good experience and when they go to their uh, church they listen and they receive information and you know their wisdom text may be folly but there's a lot of folly in the wisdom text of every religion you know and it's sort of like at one point are you are you just saying like this is the we're looking at the institute institution of what a religion is and a new one is scary because it makes us realize like our old ones are the same thing they're mm-hmm. just older yeah it, it kind of know? it kind of uh and uh it puts the it, it airs out the kind of the dirty laundry the the nuances or the superficialities that you know maybe maybe we're um culturally and contextually relevant at the time of conception or or inception but now are not relevant but but the archetype of of what it's actually what it's actually what its mechanism actually is in context of humanity it all leads to these same things that we've been just discussing for the last two hours you know it's like like Jesus and the Buddha and whatever whatever characters are on Scientology they're just they're essentially I mean the way that I feel about them is they are characters that are um, relatable like we could look at Jesus he's a man you know like even the even the um, interpretations of his imagery I mean he, he's got he's got hands and feet and hair and all you know all the things that so immediately you have a point of relation but then they're showing how this person is kind of all about the service of others, right? And all about, you know, taking less and caretaking more, you know? Like, that's that's basically what Jesus was doing. That's what Buddha was doing. I mean, and there are, there are I don't want to say that they're all the same because that's, for one, I'm not in the position of, like, my knowledge of every religion is not at that level, but at, at also... It's like I know there are I know there are differences that you can see, but at this I, I truly believe that at the same time, it's all d- directed in one, you know, in one basic. It's it's, it's a trajectory of positivity of um, oneness of synergy, you know, all that kind of kind of thing is is what it's really ultimately about, you know, is what it's getting to. So, however, it is like if it's something weird like. You know, Scientology, or if it's a weird ritual that you do that's, like, super quirky that no one gets, but it gets you in line and gets you calibrated to, like, put your best... To, like, um, put your best self out there, you know? And be the best person you can be. There's nothing wrong with it in my eye. You know, it's not harming anyone. It's actually helping everyone, you know, in in its own way. Yeah, there's tons of spectrum in that, and there's tons of gray... And um, it's like, it's really interesting at the end of the day to talk about like being the best person you can be also because there's a sliding scale of uh, objectivity and subjectivity with what's right or wrong and what's good or bad. And if you look at the, uh, the idea of the Piscean age of the Christians, it was to have probably as many human beings on earth as possible. You know, if you look at what their rules really stand for and what the, the goal was, you know, it's um, it's to create stability and order and health and peace and acceptance, and those are all the. And that's and that's actually, yeah. I mean, that's fundamentally Darwinian. Yeah. Because the the success of the uh, successful propagation is a is a is 
the main principle in Darwinism, like how can we keep the species right. as thriving as possible? Right. So that's the that's the third eye, um, all seeing like like big hand. If mm-hmm. you look at the mainstream religion of Christianity, those rules are basically a rule book to propagate successfully, mm-hmm. and that's, I mean, to even like manage that idea of a religion as being a an institution to. Um, you know, let the human beings thrive is incredible. And, but there was the last, the 2000 years of, uh, starting with the, the Catholic, the Roman Catholic, um, basically they, they, they set out to be the one, you know, to be the one religion teaching those principles, um, because they had a very singular mindset about how, this would work and how the the plan could work and their big plan uh it seems historically according to them would only work if there was one religion uh doing it and and i think where catholicism has kind of lost its way in many respects is that like you were saying blake about how everything everything is changed and you have to be on that positive trajectory moving up that mountain but you also have to be willing to, you know, there are different modalities that will come into play unforeseen, right? And I think the Catholic Church has not embraced change in in the way that many of the other religions that are well-established and are essentially not in as much, uh, not in as much as the, in the trenches as far as, uh, you know, like certain things like complete abstinence like the idea of like the priests you know never having sex in their life even though that we're programmed like you were saying it's like we we're programmed for the species to be successful and so like these drives for sexual expression are deeply inherited in us and to repress those so adamantly is is it just seems like a recipe for for what's going on right now i mean that they have their reasons for that of like keeping like their spirit pure and all that, but it's really not successful in this context. And it's, 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 it's showing itself, you know, like there's an app, it's, it's, it's actually, I mean, I would classify that as an epidemic of, of, of sexual abuse and molestation and all that is seated deeply on the, in the international network of the, of the Catholic church. And, I really like, I really can't get behind Catholicism with just, I, I feel like that, I feel like they've either, they, they're at a time where they need to adapt and they need to come forthright as possible and say, all this is wrong, like we're, we're starting anew, we're going to keep these things intact and we're going to, like, because this cannot persist instead of creating essentially like they've, this may be, this may be a bit taboo to say, but they've propagated a, a, a rape culture, essentially, yeah, on a very deep level, an international network of somebody's, you know, taking the innocence. Like that's like, like what you said of, of like the, um, basically robbing someone of their innocence, or that's like one of the most tragic things in the human experience. And that is being perpetuated on a vast level that's beyond our, our even awareness because we hear about all the stuff that comes out of the United States, but Catholicism is an international kind of brand, you know? So it's like, 
the, that level of deep uh, of just of of knowing that somebody is maybe sick or maybe somebody that needs help and you take that individual and you put them in a position where young children are vulnerable and you know that they have a sickness and you know that people who have that sickness are compelled to those occupations as well on top of some of it can be developed along the way from just the repression from just like had like being um basically scared into this idea of absolute abstinence like those variables are are, are proving to be a, an immense failure and and that is because there is no they're, they're not embracing change they're not embracing the context of now and and that's that's one thing that fundamentally about buddhism is they've been outright to say that if something principally is found to be untrue and even if it's found to be untrue scientifically like we then have no other choice but to then reevaluate our position and then you know and then adapt you know and i think you got to have yeah. that adaptation. And other religions have. You have, um, you know, family men who are uh, preachers or, or pastors who, in the bounds of their marriage, they like, we can have all these kids, we can have all this family, and that's what they do. And that's why there's lots of religions that operate differently than Roman Catholicism. If you look at the and By Roman the way, I'm Catholics, not saying all you Catholics out there. Yeah, I'm not no, saying no, you're no, bad no. people. I'm saying there are... There are wonderful people that are proclaimed Catholics, yeah. so on and so forth. I'm talking. I'm, I'm talking about the religion. Yeah. Whole. Oh, I just want to yeah. establish that. Like, yeah, I'm absolutely. Sh- and and you know, historically, um, you have to look at the the source of the Roman Catholic power was studied globally before they figured out how they wanted to do it. And if you look at how they went to the Druidic cultures um, and uh, the Celts and uh, to Egypt, to ancient Egypt, they learned all around the world how to create and manifest power on an immense level. And one, and the, here's a multifaceted argument here um, for the, what the Roman Catholics did um, in terms of effectiveness and what they, um, but also how they got it done. There's always going to be gray area. Historically, um, people are you have to look in terms of objective truth. And uh, the Romans knew that one big highway was better than a thousand disconnected roads. That was part of their MO. The, Roman Catholic, the Romans built their Roman roadways in ways that made information travel very quickly. And, and the, when the information got from very far distances, it was accurate. And that was because they wanted to build roads. And they knew that connecting all of these little roads with big highways was the way to do that. And that was their philosophy on how to do almost everything that they wanted to do. And if you look at... Well, that was also Adolf Hitler's philosophy as well. Well, Because much of our infrastructure and much of the technologies that we enjoy... I mean, Hitler sucks, Come. you know? Like, I, I don't want to talk... I mean, Hit, what Hitler well, did, he, wanted does, to do, does, even Does work. he really suck more than, like, what... Whoever was orchestrating, like, the Pope at the time, okay. that the Crusades during the medieval That's era? That's a really interesting question. Is and, he really that worse than them? Or are you just farther... Or, or, or Because there is that whole idea of the more proximal something is, whether in space or time, that, that the more connected to it. Perfect example, you could take a... 
um, somebody who drives a bombing uh, a bomb uh, a bombing pilot. What 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 do you call those? Uh, an air bomber, right? Like, and you tell that person, all right, you're gonna drop this bomb. It's gonna be this. You're gonna fly at this location. You're gonna drop this this bomb. Yada yada. So I'm gonna give you the option to do that, or you have to go and. Um, put a gun to a child's head and blow their brains out, just one child. The person is going, to be, is going to pick dropping the bomb, even though the bomb may kill thousands of children, almost 99% of the time versus putting a gun to someone's head. So because Adolf Hitler is more proximal, he's, it's closer to home because it wasn't that long ago. The Crusades were much longer ago, even though arguably probably just as many people died as a result of the the the, um, the conquests of the um, Christian Crusades, as did in the, you know, in World War Two. I mean, what was going on? I do want to make a a point between Hitler and the Roman Catholics, and that is, I think that at the core of the Roman Catholic mission was extremely humanitarian and anti hedonistic. I think that if you if they wanted to relieve the world of of heathen but things. that's also adolf hitler but at the, but i think at the end I of mean, the that's, day he was very apparent about like he thought he was doing a favor to mankind he thought that yes it's going to be he, he was aware that of the of the catastrophic nature in proximity but he thought that by doing so that there was clearly I mean, there was clearly hitler, a race of people that were that were threatening to him and and the this idea of like you know yeah kind sure. of like the utopic sure. idea and he was like I'm going to make this sacrifice now for the greater perspective of mankind the same thing same it's the same rudimentary I mean philosophy. I, I know that the the sickness uh, the the flawed thinking in Adolf Hitler's head was that he was doing the right thing a lot of sociopaths feel the same way when they shoot up churches and stuff like that I think what Hitler's flawed thinking as far as the, the vision of the future of mankind is that um, there's human lives that um, must be annihilated based on their, um, their you know, his vision of their future. And, and he wanted to like... Well, he hit- thought they were a plague amongst humans, which essentially was his philosophy. I'm, so, like, if you look at um, Hitler's philosophy, it was nip the bud kill everybody who doesn't believe uh, and um and attack now one of the biggest stories in the catholic faith is the story of moses and how the egyptians wanted to kill him as a baby which is a story of the institution of a of a society trying to kill an innocent but his loving mother put him in a basket and sent him down the river and he grew up to free slaves and become a one of the largest prophets of all the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And that's the story of uh, that's their story of why you protect innocence and why you don't kill and why you don't um kill the baby. And Hitler's philosophy was let's kill all the babies, you know? And that's the big difference, I think, in the what they thought of and how, well, how they lived. You know? Well, though, in the Crusades, though, I mean, there, I mean, it's 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 documented based on what we know. I mean, there was children that, that I mean, so children were slaughtered. 
Like, so, every, villages were slaughtered in crusades. Like, they'd yeah. go and kill everybody in the village, all the children, all the babies, and burn it down to the ground. So let's talk about the, the shades of, of gray and how the Roman Catholics accomplished everything they did. And it was by um, force and by learning and adapting and building what their empire of knowledge on how to have power. And um, there's so many things in the Middle Ages, um, but at the very beginning, if you look at the timeline historically... And, and what priests are and what the Pope is and why they have the rules. You know, to come back to why Catholic priests do what they do, it's to have an aura of inhumanity about them and to have that to a perceivable link in between them and the divine, to have their righteous authority. And at the top is the Pope. And if you look historically, the, when the Roman conquest of Egypt ended, the, do you know the last year there ever was a pharaoh in Egypt? was 30 AD and the historical year that there was the first pope coronated was 30 AD and what they've basically done if you look historically is they went to Egypt they learned all about the power system going on there and then they came home and they created a pharaonic uh, dynasty for their own purposes and that's if you look at what the pope is and how we look at the pope he lives in a in a kingdom made of gold. He's the divine link between people and man, and he's a modern day pharaoh. And there's a psychology of a pharaoh that has lasted all that time. But the gray area is that while the Romans left, they burned it down, and they did that everywhere, and they did that for a long time. Right, and so I mean, I, I don't think you can unequivocally say that that the Pope was not a sociopath like Hitler. I mean, because it's all principled on like, how can we do this optimally, efficiently, what's in the way, let's get rid of what's in the way, let's take what works, amplify that, let's get rid of what's in the way. And I that's, agree. That, that's the rudimentary philosophy of basically what is I, being espoused. I agree that you can draw all negative actions to each other and say they all come from the same But I'm place. saying like, I'm yeah. saying the Catholic Church has a very, I mean, it's still to this day, I mean, still to this day, they are probably the most, besides like perhaps the Muslim religion, as far as just, they're, they're, they're so much in the dark ages and they're still caught in those times. And it's like all of that, I mean, to me, it, it seems like as though a sociopath would be behind like knowing somebody's molesting all these kids and then just moving them to another market, not disclosing it to the market you're moving them to, and then just letting them have at it, you know, until they get caught again and then move them again. And that's it's just con- it's just big circle of them moving around people who are just robbing the innocence of, of thousands. Who knows? It's probably at this point millions of children have been. It, we only know about what we know, and that's and and that is extremely alarming. Well, productive. But but I, I can't I, I I can't. I mean, yeah. perhaps this is a point of like agree to disagree, but I can't say that like <laughs> I find the 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 Pope or the Catholic Church or any of its predecessors at any level above Adolf Hitler. I feel like if you look at the proof is in the pudding, they're both not good. <laughs> like at the end of the day, I. Know? Not but just because really there are positive things from... I really do think that manifestly over 2,000 years, the, the Catholic Church has achieved a lot of what they wanted to achieve in terms of order and stability and peace, whereas 
um, it's impossible to imagine 2,000 years after Adolf Hitler won because he lost, right? I'm sure 2,000 years, if the, if the Nazis had had their way, it's impossible to imagine. We didn't want to imagine it, and we fought hard to not allow it. And um, at, I also think that... Um, well, really... well, you also know, you also know here's, here's, here's a, a big flaw in this, in this too as well, is that Hitler's one of the most well-documented individuals historically versus like you don't really know you can't you can't say anything unequivocally about this the psyche of the pope yeah pre, you, know, you don't yeah. know about the pope you yeah. barely know we know barely know anything about the pope and compared to what we know about adolf hitler the prehistoric monstrosities of of humanity are they have to be incalculable like there was a culling of the herd for a long time because we all look the same basically like around the world we have different races and different heights and things like that, um, but there have to have just been like like genocide and massacre just have to be um, part of our history. The fact that in two thousand short years we've come to a moral high ground against those things as a culture is very important and very very cool, you know. And the fact that in nineteen you know twenties to forties some guy was like. Nah, man, we, we got to slow, we got to come back into the fold of doing that um, was not something that our, our collective consciousness and our higher consciousness in, in this short amount of time was willing to allow. And we think of our time here as being short, like we call it year 2019, but it's not. It's year like a billion for us, you know, and, you know, human beings maybe evolved a million years ago. You know, great white sharks stopped evolving 20 million years ago. We are here for a short amount of time in our, in our higher state is always becoming. So I think that like, if even if you look at, like objectively you can say, killing is bad. I think, or massacre is bad and, and genocide and all those things. Like we just can't allow that as a people anymore. Um, we're coming to a framework now where we're trying to understand what the world looks like without it. Because every time someone tries it, we say no. Like, mm-hmm. And I think that there was a time before here where because of uh, because it was so easy for uh, corruption to manifest in violent ways, we learned over time. And it's hard to like, if you like, there's a, I think there's a real reason that like we can't try 10 year olds for murder, you know? And I look at 2000 years ago humans as a childlike barbarian um like incomprehensible young version of us like we're growing into a a, an older tree and now there's things that we can stop and say like all right people you're too old for that you know um i think that it's sort it's sort of like that's um and it's hard to you can equate the two you know like if a if a 10 year old accidentally or like intentionally kills somebody you know that's completely fucked up but we don't call it murder you know and um it's a uh, it's a very similar analogy in that way for me and i think also at the end of the day um I, you know productively like moving the conversation towards what i think like as far as social justice goes i'd love to see in the coming years a move towards accepting our atheist brothers and our atheist sisters and not saying like that they are um, inadequate in terms of emotional stability 
or emotional um, wealth and, and knowledge. Like I just want to have anybody out there who is um, religious, like I, I love you guys, but you're on the winning team. You're like the Patriots fans right now. Like you are, um, it's easy to be you. And uh, just to draw a consciousness towards people out there who don't have any kind of faith or aren't religious or um, just they want the proof. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there who feel not accepted in their society and not accepted in their families or in their homes. And just being treated like bad people is um, a, a way to make a lot of bad people, you know. Um, it, it creates their, their view of reality will always be warped by their feeling of injustice because of how they, how they were made to feel about what they believe. So um, I think that there's a lot of, you know, anger um, in, in both sides. And it's sort of like, you know, atheists, they love to point at the Christian voter group, you know, the people out there who's like, who, they don't even resemble Jesus at all if they call themselves Christian. Like, in my opinion, if you call yourself a Christian... It's because you know about Jesus Christ. You know in many different situations through stories what he would have done or what he would have liked to do. And if you come across situations in your life where you're given those same difficult ethical moments, even if you fail nine times out of ten to do what Jesus Christ would have done, you know what he would have done and you're, you're sorry you're not as strong as he is. And that's being a Christian. And there's so many people out there that they're just part of a community. And that's what atheists look at. And I know atheists, they don't like that. They don't want, um, they don't want to be part of that, that group of people who it seems like a very shallow way to interpret existence and, and life. And um, I hope that as far as social justice goes, atheists, they get a president. I hope atheists get um, a, a lot more than they're able to get right now. They've got a ceiling because... They're not drinking the Kool Aid, and there's there's a problem. Well, I think atheists like, I think just the idea of calling atheists atheists has got to go. They're just that's putting them into their own religious that. category, yeah. their own dogmatic category. I, I think they would prefer like just to be people who just are, you know, mm-hmm. who just are in the world, you know, and they're not they're not one way or another. They're not a Christian. They're not a Jew. They're not a Muslim. They're not this or any, they're not anything. You know, and, and like to just, I think that's just a new way of being, you know, and I think that religions, I think that there's a lot of good that came out of religions. I think there's good that comes out of everything. I mean, I mean, they're, they're saying that like, um, I was just listening to something about how Germany is so, they're like probably one of the most apologetic um, societies and they're and and they probably take responsibility for something that they didn't even have any direct many of the people that live in Germany didn't even have any direct control over but they take full on responsibility for what happened mm-hmm. and they constantly remind the new generations of like this is what can happen this is what actually did happen here and th- and this isn't going to happen again and 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 here's why it happened here are the here are the markers, here are the, the archetypes of the things that set this whole thing off. And this is like, feel this, feel this, what happened. Like they, they're really big on people, like feeling that and being reminded of like, just the, the, the tragic element of that. 
And a lot of good came from that, right? Because now that society is so much stronger. They realized where they, they fell into where there was pitfalls and in, in their way of being and all this stuff. And then they were able to say like, that man, that was really so wrong on every respect. Like now we can, now we can emerge out of this stronger than ever and, 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 and be great for, for, for mankind, you know? And so there's always going to be, I mean, even in the most tragic things, there's always going to be positives. I mean, you can even say like, those who are Jewish, like Jew, Jewish people have like a, a positive stereotype of being very resilient, like people, you know, like there's a positive stigma around that. And maybe it's through growing all those through all those troughs and still finding a way to rise up out of it and say, no, you cannot take, you can't take, you know, what is, you can't take like faith away. You can't take like, you know the hope for a better future away or the, the or the you, you you can't rob and we're proof of that like we still emerged even though that just happened like here we are stronger than ever you know like the, there's there's a lot of positive in that too you know, and just resiliency and things it, like that it's amazing if you look at in terms of like eastern philosophies of balance and mm-hmm. and that the energy is always creating nothing it's really an amazing like vision and even um, most religions do the exact same thing in my opinion if you look at um, the the New Testament of the Christian faith ends the exact same way that the Old Testament started in terms of balance and equality and it zeroes out and it's very ecclesiastical if you look at the Garden of Eden and and the lamb living in the Garden of Eden and then becoming enlightened and more human and leaving and being cast out of the garden. If you look at the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, it's basically the world then sacrificing the lamb. Mm. And in a lot of ways, it's showing the balance of all things and saying um, the, the lamb isn't happy in paradise. And then at the very end of the New Testament, um, it, it describes hell. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was a a story of his journey through the the circles of hell that they also believed in um, through in the Roman Catholic Church and and that's what you're supposed to experience what Jesus was supposed to experience was a journey through hell and so and then he was cast out they cast the lamb out of hell just as the lamb was cast out of heaven and that's what we're here to do we're here to be on earth in the middle and there's nothing else. That's the ecclesiastical sense. Is everything, everything above and below, is not going to work. And what we have here is the middle ground. And what the best we can do is learn and talk and communicate and share. And in a way, um, even that zeroes out eventually. So um, your your experience is very personal, and I think that there's no way of it, of of describing it. In other ways, um, unless romantically, and the stories, they link up, you know, like all, everything, everything we talk about is part of this golden thread, right? Like, um, if you look at Carl Jung, you know, where he's talking like psychologically about in the early days of psychology, he and Freud both wanted to create this concept of a golden thread, and that's what everybody wants. 
there's some things that everybody wants and everything we do is a manifestation of either us like trying to get it, having it or not having it, you know, mm-hmm. and including the way the, the languages we speak and the ways that we dress and the ways of everything is part of our um, our moonshot to get what we want. And um think that that's very like beautiful like we there's a reason we can even sit here and connect in this room right now because we all want to uh, you know I I live so um, parched of like great consciousness you know like I go out and you meet people all day long and um, I'm even still I still try to be a real one you know with people wherever I go in terms of like my career in uh, kitchens and in music and in everything. And um, I still try to talk to people in ways that maybe people don't usually talk to them because I want to uplift. I want to, you know, delete negativity. I want to um, cancel fear and like do all of these things. Um, but there's still so much of that left that it's sort of like um, you end up with the balance of that neutral feeling and being like, okay, everything I'm doing is part of that um, that growing at growing zero balance in a way, you mm-hmm. know, um, and uh, there's a there's a special place in my mind for for all faith and all um, and all the stories, and it's just amazing how um, even if you look at the structure of the Bibles and the structure of the stories that they tell, how how glory like I'm I hate Bibles that leave out Ecclesiastes, you know, I because it's like that's just fitting into your agenda of how you want to shape your religion to not being like that. But mm. these are wisdom texts full of amazing, like understanding of like neutral truth and neutral positivity and neutral negativity and things that just exist and are and having the stories to, to come up and beat those things and to win against them. And it's really a difficult task, which I think we really took head on in this conversation to say, if that's what you're teaching, to what extent do you betray your teaching to achieve um, the manifestation of the lesson? And it's really complicated. I mean, because obviously there's people like Adolf Hitler who said, there's no ceiling. You go to any length um, to, to manifest the lesson um, mm-hmm. in terms of brutality and savagery. And, and, uh, and there's other people like Jesus Christ who just basically let them as a manifestation of God hang him on a cross and and stab him with a spear because that's that was how he manifested his lesson and if you look at us telling that story 2000 years later in terms of love and appreciation and respect um that's an incredible an incredible power that he knew maybe you know if uh, if that's true um and even if it's like it's funny because manifestly even if the stories aren't true the fact that we've told them so many times means there's truth within and um and i don't think there was any truth into um some of those you know other people who like were obviously like what an egotistical asshole who like who thought his lesson would best be learned through violence um, versus the the humility of the the lamb who knew his lesson would best be learned through 
um, his sacrifice. So it's just really cool. I mean, and that ties even back into what we're talking about about the the athletes and mm-hmm. the ego and the and the way to have your righteous authority. Um, and so that's very interesting. I hope that you know this really became kind of a private conversation for me. But if anybody does listen to this, I hope that they know that, um, like, I hope that you find ways to develop your righteous authority, um, even if it just takes time and getting 1% better every year, you know? Mm-hmm. It's cool. On that note, let's just go ahead and close out the segment. Um, yeah. This was a great episode of Breakfast with Blake and Jake featuring Teo Halls. Thanks for joining us, Teo. Love it. Thanks for going to the depths of the... The wasteland. Yeah, man. The we, depths of it all. We call that the foreign wasteland. Read Ecclesiastes, if you haven't. That's great. Ecclesiastes? Yeah. The book of... Um, okay. Is that a... Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes? Song, Psalms? Ecclesiastes... Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentation. I don't know. I don't actually know much about the, the structure of how it's all written, but this it's just basically this part of the Bible that was written by an unknown king or an unnamed king and um, it just talks about um, the middle ground you know Old Testament right um, I, I don't so. know I really don't I, think I just remember we had a like uh, I went to like bride at school so we had to memorize nice. the orders of the chapters of the <laughs> <laughs> like you had to like every single year like that was like a requisite of you had to like rattle off like, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Malachi, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Luke. <laughs> wow. First and Second Samuel, First and Second King, Ezra, Nehemiah, Joshua, Job, Psalm, Prophets, Ecclesiastes, Son of Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Dude, they just nailed that, that in. Dude, it's it's forever in my it's forever ingrained in there. Well, for all you people out there in Catholic school, stay tough. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just want to bring up. Like, I just want to speak on a couple things that sort of arose for me during that conversation because I actually didn't even say a word throughout this entire second segment. True. I just couldn't find a place where it felt right like to even speak. Um, I think like a lot of a lot of my um, a lot of my most like vulnerable moments like of just like really fragile and tender sort of emotion come from this place of not necessarily feeling qualified or um, you know justified in like speaking on certain things um, like I, I really don't know anything about this entire Catholic situation um, I was just kind of in the dark and I plan to do some research after this episode just to kind of educate myself on it um when it comes to some of the you know like the implications of the holocaust and just everything that comes along with that discussion there's a lot of personal emotional turmoil emotional turmoil um that I still like carry in terms of that that topic of discussion just because of certain instances within my childhood and my personal identity of being raised as a Jew like you know I don't really necessarily know how to navigate that type of discussion all all the time you know especially when there's there's I mean difficult discussion I think is extremely an extremely important part of growth and evolution um, which is honestly why I'm (laughs) 
you know, taking the time to just voice some of what was coming up for me psychologically. And I think from an introspective perspective, you know, this is like what mindfulness is all about. Like this whole conversation for me was at least the second half of this segment was a way for me to practice mindfulness and to just observe the emotions that were coming up for me throughout the discussion and to do my best to just really pay attention and listen to each of you express like your own unique perception on everything that was discussed and it was really really valuable for me to be able to to witness that but I will say if I hadn't taken the time to just use these last couple minutes to express that out loud I think I would have been leaving the podcast in a worse place than I would have started um, so I just want to encourage like myself and both of you and anyone who's listening to take the time to express the, the experience, your unique experience. You know, we say oftentimes the suppression of expression is what leads to certain, you know, catastrophic, um, you know, instances like the Holocaust or any, any of these larger instances or micro instances. So We'll bring it back to the saber blood. <laughs> you know, the paint in, in our world is like a metaphor for emotion and expression. So, um, you know, we just want to encourage like ourselves and everyone to not keep it bottled up, you know, to let it out and to, we just want to encourage discussion and introspection and reflection. And mm-hmm. It's beautiful. That's, yeah, that's really important. Give me a splat, man. Splat me, literally splat me with that, that paint, boy. <laughs> I, just, I need to get my own bit. No doubt. <laughs> Go. Love it. <laughs> Savage. Perfect. And on that note, Teo just hit me with that splatter that that splatter blood. That saber blood. Um If you guys are out there feeling something right now or if it if it arises later just listen to your thoughts listen to your expression and jump into that thing don't look back Peace. hey guys once again this is blake want to thank you so much for joining jake and i today on breakfast with blake and jake Once again, that was our guest, Teo Halls. You can find Teo on social media at Teo Halls. That's T-H-E-O-H-A-L-L-S. As always, you can find us on social media at I Am Growing Younger, or you can visit our website, www.iamgrowingyounger.com. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.